0: Now, as a Southerner, I've discovered this. Southerners use more metaphors than others. <laughs> I am the only Southerner on our faculty. And I just find that out, just the way life is. You know, uh, a Yankee, if Yankee father says to, their, to his kid, if, if you misbehave, I'm going to spank you. A Southerner will say, if you misbehave, I'm going to be on you like a tick on a hound dog. And you know what? The kids get it. And most of the time, you and I never have trouble picking up figures of speech. Now, every now and then that's the case. I had a young couple. Uh, they were coming to my church. He was a student at Baptist Bible College. He was from Pennsylvania. And he, but he married a Georgia Peach. She had come up to the college. She was, she was Georgia Peach. She's from Georgia. And we're talking at lunch one time. We're having lunch. And I use a figure of speech And he stopped me to ask me what I just said. She had no trouble with it because she was from the South. She picked it up right away. But I had to stop and explain my figure of speech. I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember having to do that. Um, So sometimes we struggle with that, but most of the time we don't. We don't struggle with that. Now, for the metaphorical view, these descriptions of fire and torment are metaphorical, that is figures of speech. They stand for something else. So the next point, hell is not about real fire. Fire and torment are terms used to describe what is indescribable. The next slide, the descriptions of hell use terms that paint a picture of God's judgment that is beyond our current experience. For example, you and I know what fire is in our own experience. But the eternal fire and all those things, that's something beyond our experience. And fire represents something beyond our experience. And uh, the next, hell is still horrible punishment. You want to put in horrible punishment in your notes there. And may be far worse than what fire brings to our minds. It is more serious mental anguish than it is literal fire. Where the literal view would say it's both really. Now, one of the things that is true about the metaphorical view that the actual nature of hell is unknown. I don't have a statement to you. It's unknown. It stands for something that's far worse, but we don't know what that is. Now, uh, Crockett, go to the next slide. I have a, a statement by Crockett. He's the editor of The Four Views book, and uh, he represents the metaphorical view. Here's his description. The descriptions of hell in the Bible show us that hell is eternal, and that it is punishment, as the literal view teaches. However, the nature of the punishment is not to be described in terms of physical fire, darkness, gnashing of teeth. Instead, these descriptions are to be taken metaphorically, with the result that the nature of the eternal punishments are unknown. They are sometimes viewed as difficult beyond our imagination. So... Next slide, that means he agrees with the literal view that means he agrees with me on the duration of hell less than the th- if you' would advance that for me, which is forever and the next thing the fact that it is punishment he agrees with that The areas of disagreement with the literal view is that the description is metaphorical, and the nature of the punishment is unknown Now Crockett gives a list of reasons why he Holds to his view. I'll give those and then I'll give my responses. I'll give some of my responses as we go, but then I have a list of my responses. The first reason he gives, embarrassment in the literal view. Fire. A forever fire. That should cause us embarrassment. I go, really? Really? For 2,000 years, a lot of Christians have not been embarrassed by that. It certainly embarrasses some. Second, other major Christian figures have held to the metaphorical view. Well, You always want to bring that out. When you disagree with the majority view, you find some big guys in history that agree with you and you put that forward. And he has quite a major list. Go ahead and put all those up there, if you would, for me, Aaron. C.S. Lewis is the last one in the list. Those are big names. John Calvin, Martin Luther from the Reformation, Charles Hodge, uh, one of the more famous Presbyterian theologians of the late 1800s, J.I. Packer, Kenneth Cancer. uh, You may have heard of Billy Graham. I don't know. C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him. Go to the next slide. There's a quote here from Calvin. I thought I'd share this with you. Now, because no description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked, their torments and tortures are figuratively expressed to us by physical things, that is, by darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, an undying worm gnawing at the heart. But such expressions the Holy Spirit certainly intended to confound all our senses with dread. They're not literal, but they're symbols of dread, and we should uh, think of them in that Light. Okay. Now I go to, well, my notes here. Go to the next slide. And the first one, did I skip number three? What's number three in your notes? Bible uses and okay, so I just have. Oh, annihilation is number three. oh, not that. I'm thinking here in this slide. I've missed number three. I've got embarrassment, in the literal view. Other major Christian figures have held to the metaphorical it's view. The Gruesome nature. Okay, add number three, gruesome nature. That's really the same as number one. Gruesome nature is what that is. Okay. That's really one and three are the same. But Crockett lists it separately. Don't know why. But number four, the Bible uses symbols. Well, of course it does. And there's a the difference between a symbol and a metaphor. Symbol is something that stands for something else in a uh, concrete way. For example, uh, Jesus talked in the Olivet Discourse about the fig tree. The fig tree says when you start seeing it bud, you know that these things are near. Well, that could be a natural figure, a natural figure of speech. just an illustration of, okay, when you see the trees budding, you know it's going to come. Spring's right around the corner, things are going to come. But many take the view that that's talking about Israel. And in that case, it would be a symbol for The nation of Israel. It's a little bit different nuance there on what that means. So they're not quite the same. He also talks about rabbinic hyperbole. You know what rabbinic means? The Jewish rabbis used hyperbole all the time. So did Jesus. So we know this is all just a bunch of exaggeration to make a point. That's really what he's arguing. And so the descriptions he says of heaven are symbolic. And therefore we must make the descriptions of hell metaphorical. Revelation 19.22 The streets of gold and the pearly gates. You know what? He just assumes that the descriptions of heaven are non-literal. I don't have any problem with pearly gates. I know that's a big clam. I know. (laughs) <laughs> just stop and think about that I know it's a big clam but God can do that right made a big fish for Jonah I mean, I mean God the creator of the universe won't you settle that you don't have any trouble with miracles you have a God who made everything out of nothing raising somebody from the dead is a peony miracle compared to that God can pull that off, and he can pull off a pearly gate, and he can pull off a street of gold, and he presents those things, and some people just assume that they're not literal. Uh, I don't know that we have to assume that they're non-literal. I think that he prefers to have that non-literal so that he can have an argument to have hell not be literal. And then uh, number six, his argument is conflicting language. And I think this may be his strongest argument. I say that next. And there's several examples that he gives. For example, fire and darkness. Now, we've seen those passages. I won't go to those passages. But here's the fire and darkness. Fire, in our experience, entails what? Light. So how can you have fire and outer darkness at the same time? If you take those literally, he says, you have a contradiction, so you must somehow see those as metaphorical to make sense of the language. But, you know, a non-literal interpretation is uh, not necessary. I mean, there are examples in nature in our life to make us think about that. Go to the next slide. Well, response, go, go to the next slide. You remember that? I know some of you don't like Star Trek or Star Wars, do you? <laughs> you know, there's the famous battle scene. It seems rather gloom, you know. It seems like outer darkness to me. Yet there's fire all around. See, it's just a way of looking at that. Go to the next slide. Just our picture there of fire within a black background. Go to the next slide picture of a ball of fire with blackness around it. The idea that outer darkness and fire can't be mixed just in our common sense presentations of things we see isn't exactly a slam dunk. Go to the next slide. Uh, All the way to the bottom, I add one more punch there. Thank you. Uh, I don't think we can get to there. I'm just going to leave that alone. But I've got a website there, Invisible. Chemo- I don't, can't give it to you. I'll try to find that for you. The Invisible Chemical Flames. How many of you had chemistry in high school or college? You remember when you had to put up that uh, filter in front of your eyes looking at some chemical you had on fire or something? You know, and you had to see, you couldn't see certain flames unless you had that filter. Those flames were invisible to you. You couldn't see them, but they were there. In fact, this uh, link that I have here takes you to a NASA website, or a, not a NASA website, but a a company that that uh, works for NASA. NASA has developed things f- things for firefighters because firefighters go in. Uh, many times, and they can't see all the flames. See, there are invisible flames. There are those that are visible, and there are those that are invisible. And so they give them a kind of visor helmet, this company works on that, to help the firefighters see the invisible flames. That stuff exists in our own culture. So the idea that fire and outer darkness uh, can't mix because... Fire automatically means light is not true. Some flames do not show off light within the range of our own eyes as humans. So, I think that's interesting. And he goes on. Next slide. Okay, next. Uh, he gives weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is that a problem? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That there's conflict there. Weeping and anger? You know, I said that's anger. Weeping and anger? Oh, no, people have cried. Jesus, when, you, you know, when it says that Jesus wept, the Greek word there means that he was angry while he cried. He was mad at sin, and he wept openly about it. What well, sin had brought havoc upon the earth as he stood before Lazarus' tomb. So the idea that uh, weeping and gnashing somehow contradict each other is not true. Then their worm never dies. Well, the argument's like this. We've never seen worms that don't die. And we see a worm on the sidewalk, we squash it. We know that worms die. Well, wait a minute. We're talking about the afterlife. Why is the starting point our own experience? See, if our starting point is a creator God who can do anything he chooses to do, and if he has told us what those things are, then we should not argue with him about those. I think there's a problem here in just the way we do it. And, um, let's go down a couple more. Let's go to number seven. And this says spirit bodies cannot be affected by physical fire. I have one question for those who say this. How do you know? Kind of like that guy in the hell video. He says, I don't know, I've never been there. How do you know that spirit bodies? He doesn't know that. He certainly doesn't know that from experience. He has all these arguments that are based upon our experience, and then he pulls up one that is totally bizarre, in my view. How does he know That spirit bodies cannot have pain. After all, who is hell prepared for? Devil Devil and his angels. Do they have physical bodies? I know on Little House of the Prairie they show up like they do. Okay, they appear. They appear as men in the Bible. But they don't have physical form, they have spirit form. But yet they're going to be punished. So the argument here is a little spacious, in my opinion. It's it's, uh, out to lunch. Now, I I want to say this. I respect Crockett and those who hold the metaphorical view. I respect Billy Graham. I came to Christ through Billy Graham. So you're never going to get me attack Billy Graham. I'm just telling you, I disagree. And I've given you my reasons. And, of course... Biblically, we go to the Matthew 25, 41 passage in Luke 16, which clearly shows spirit bodies being tormented. Unless you take that lengthy passage as non-literal, and there's no reason to, Uh, then you have no basis to stand on. Okay. Okay, I'm about to shift over to my second session notes. Any questions at this point that you'd like to bring up at this moment? Uh... Could we start passing out the second session notes? Yes, ma'am. Well, you know, number two, let me just start with number two. I mean, there are... The The length. Yes, that's it. There are Christian figures on both sides, so I can make my list. That doesn't prove anything. There's still the people on both sides. Uh, So that would be my answer to that. And it's fine. I understand. His list does show this. And I agree with this, that his view is not a weird view. Okay, and I agree with that. I respect his view. When I come to the annihilation view, I don't respect that view. Okay. Now, the embarrassment and gruesomeness of it goes back to the whole issue of that's the problem. And I'll address that a little bit later about the, you see, it's the harsh harsh things in the Bible. Uh, I have an article that I wrote a few years ago uh, on uh, the softness in postmodern attitudes about God, war, and man. Softness. Our culture right now is very, very soft. And we, we assume anything that is harsh is automatically wrong. I think the people a hundred years ago in our culture would be horrified by that. I'm horrified by that. I think it has ramifications for how we respond to terror in our day. I think it responds a lot of things. Uh, and in that paper, I cover three things. I recover... Uh, I respond to, and I think I have it later, so I maybe not should spill the beans. I talk about the second coming and how that's viewed as a negative. Jesus comes back and kills people. Talk about that. And then that paper, I forgive me, I deal with Star Trek. Star Trek 5. It's the movie where they go to uh, find God. How many of you saw that movie? Okay. That's an interesting movie. Because in the whole movie, they assume a Christian view of God. All the way through the movie. And then they get there and they discover this, this being is uh, not God. He just, he's in prison on that planet. He's just an alien who has the power of, of mystical mind projection and et cetera, et cetera, and thinks, causes people to think he's God. And then there are three reasons they find out why he's not God. <coughs> the first one is he needs a starship to get off the planet. Okay, See, they're assuming God is omnipotent or even omnipresent. Why does he need a starship to get off the planet? Number two, he doesn't know Captain Kirk's name. <laughs> well, we all know Captain Kirk's name. I mean, that's silly. So if he was God, he'd know that. Uh, the third one, which is really telling, and I think it goes to the heart of our culture right now, uh, he gets mad at Spock and, uh, and Kirk and firebolts come out of his eyes and knock him down. And then he turns to Dr. McCoy. Dr. McCoy is the one in the, in the Star Trek series that's always talking about sweet Jesus. He uses that phrase. And he says to McCoy, will you also disbelieve? And McCoy says, I, I would never believe in a God who inflicts pain For his pleasure. That's it in a nutshell. That's the most important line in the whole movie. And from that moment on, there's a shift in the view of people in the movie from a Western view of God, classical Christianity, to an Eastern view. And at the end of that movie, Captain Kirk's talking to everybody. You know, they've won the day. They killed the aliens so they can have a Star Trek VI movie. And uh, they're looking out the window at the stars. And Captain Kirk says, maybe God's not out there. He points out the window. Maybe God is in here. And he points himself, his own heart. Eastern view of God, not a Western view of God. The last part of that uh, article, I deal with the atonement. And the view that's um, really making some headway, the nonviolent atonement. That for us to believe, and we believe, you're my believing Christian, you believe that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God upon sin on the cross. Well, this movement says that's divine child abuse. That's harsh. So see, all the way through, it's harsh, 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 harsh. If it's harsh, it has to be thrown away. And uh, I think when a culture becomes soft and thinks that way, pretty soon it's going to be overtaken by harsh people. Okay, I think there's some ramifications there that really bother me in terms of culture. Um, So that's part of my understanding. I don't know if I helped with my ramblings there. Okay. All right, are we, uh, everybody got the next set of notes? They asked me how far could I go without another break, and I told them I, I'm agnostic. I don't know. <laughs> this uh, particular uh, presentation is on the length of hell. Is it forever? There's a Hubble telescope uh, picture there. This. If we traveled there, we would think it took us forever. <laughs> Go to the next slide. In the introduction, there are three things. Okay, stop right there. I have Ufall, Alabama. That's one of the towns in Alabama that I grew up in. And I have a picture there. That's the downtown picture of Eufaul, a very small town. Anybody ever heard of Eufaul, Alabama? Anybody been there? Two? You get, you, get, you get stars for coming today. I lived there for about three years in the early 1960s. That's where I learned to bowl. <laughs> I was on Google the other day looking up, doing Google Earth and Google Maps stuff, l- getting pictures of all the houses I've lived at in my life. But, you know, I was Putting together a PowerPoint presentation with those pictures for my parents as a Christmas gift. And uh, there's a little tree that was in the front yard that's now a huge tree, so the picture, you can't even see the house. It's right in front of the house. Okay. Well, at, the, on the, at that house on the carport one Saturday morning, my twin brother Jimmy and I were just playing on the carport. And my parents came out, and apparently somebody in our family had died. And my brother and I had never had to face the issue of death before. You know, other than stepping on bugs, we knew nothing about death. And that morning, my parents explained to us now my parents were not Christians. But they explained to us what death was. And it startled me. And then, you know, my parents aren't Christians. My dad became a Christian later on after I did. But everybody down south knows the Bible stories. They used to do that up north too. And they told us that once upon a time, God destroyed the world in a flood. And one day he's coming back to destroy it with fire. That's harsh. I started bawling, eight year old kid. That bothered me all day and really for several days. That night, <coughs> I pulled the covers up over my head and I prayed a prayer. God, don't ever let me, Jimmy, that's my twin brother, me or Jimmy or mom or dad, ever die. It rattled me so much. No, you know, my parents were just Giving the truth of Second Peter three. They were telling me the truth. They they had not trusted Jesus at that point in their lives. And I didn't get saved until you know the next next slide. Twelve years later. I get saved in nineteen seventy four. I'm a senior at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And I have a dream that when I woke up, it just bothered me for a while. You ever have dreams like that? You dream in color or black and white? I dream in color always. When I was little, I, had, I watched The Wizard of Oz and it scared me so much, I had a dream about tornadoes every week. <laughs> and those monkey things didn't help either. <laughs> but now that's nothing, you know. But back then... You know, the 1960s, that was, that was a big deal. Um, I had a dream where I was in a large crowd. You see the large crowd there? That's just a picture of a large crowd somewhere. I don't know if it's at a sporting event or where. I just pulled it off the web. And in my dream, I'm in this large crowd, and I know that this crowd is the crowd, it's the, la- it's the last judgment in my my way of understanding that as a young Christian and I know that this is the crowd that made it and I am going from person to person asking if they had seen one of my loved ones and nobody has seen that loved one when I got up afterwards when I woke up it took me a while to get over that See, these discussions matter. They matter greatly. And we ought to take them that way. And preferably understand these things, love people. In the end, why do I believe hell exists in fire and torment? Because Jesus taught us that. And he's the one through which we have hope and truth. There's a third uh, picture there. H.A. Ironside. Any of you read any of Ironside's stuff? Okay. (coughs) He was a marvelous preacher and writer. Um, He once was telling a story. He was at a conference. And at the end of one of his messages, a lady is just making a, a beeline right to him afterwards. He's standing down front near the pulpit and she's just walking briskly down there and he and she looks angry and he says I know there's a lady coming down to correct the preacher she walks up to him and she says Dr Ironside I don't believe what you preach he says what is it you don't believe and she says well you you talked about once saved always saved but once you come to the lord You're saved forever. It's permanent. Eternal security. I don't believe that. He said, well, let's go over to John chapter 10. She says, I've already been there. We don't need to go there. I've heard all your arguments from that. He said, well, since you know it so well, let's go there anyway. So he got in the text with her in John chapter 10. You know, that's the passage where my sheep hear my voice. Remember that passage? And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Remember that beautiful passage? I remember in a seminary class, a student in my class, we went over that passage and he put his pencil down and said out loud, We really are eternally secure. He had been struggling with that. Well, this lady was struggling with that and Ironside said, Well, uh, it says eternal life. She says, Well, I don't believe what you preach. She says, Well, let's read it differently. And I give unto them 10 years, and then they'll have the right never to perish. Or they can perish. She said, That's okay. Okay." And I give unto them 20 years, and then they can perish. I give them to 30 years, and then they can perish. And he worked her up to about 80. And then he said, Let me read it one more time. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And she said, I don't believe what you preach. There's a hard-headedness to a lot of us. All of us probably have a spot in there where we're hard-headed. You know, she had had trouble with that everlastingness. And some people, I think, in our culture just struggle with that in general. I don't know, when I was a little boy, I struggled with everlastingness. You know, and I thought this way I would read some Bible studies you know I was at the doctor's office and they had a Bible story book there and I had read that and, and I thought here's what heaven is okay I'm wearing these really dorky things you know the head coverings and the real you know and I got a staff and I got sheep and I get up every morning and I go out and tend the sheep and then come home and that's all I do for eternity I said you gotta be kidding me I really struggle with that So I understand people when they struggle with the everlastingness of things, both good and bad, in Scriptures. But we have to come back to what does the Bible say. And so I have several passages here. Let's look at them, Matthew 18. We've already seen some of them, but I didn't emphasize the foreverness of things as we went through them. Matthew 18. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into, notice the phrase, eternal fire eternal fire. Now the metaphorical view agrees that that's eternal. It's forever. When we look at the annihilation view, they don't take that as forever. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell, which he has just described as eternal fire. Go to Matthew 25, a few chapters over. Come all the way down to 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and, you, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to, notice the phrase, eternal punishment as those who are on the left hand, but the righteous to eternal life. And one of the issues you have here, thats I'll probably come up again, if you look at eternal punishment, and the word eternal there is not eternal, it's not forever, then you have to make eternal life, not forever either. This is a tough passage for those who believe in a temporary hell, Or something like that. Okay, then go to Mark 9. Verse 40. um, Let's start with verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, Gehenna, where the f- fire never goes out. And notice it doesn't use the word eternal. So it says the fire never goes out. Uh, and if your uh, foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Of course, the idea of fire not quenching and worms not dying is a forever concept. Let's go to Second Thessalonians 1 9. The Thessalonians are a church that's having trouble with persecution, and it's very serious persecution, and uh, Paul in chapter one of Thessalonians, second Thessalonians, tells them that there's going to be a role reversal, that those guys who are bothering you now, that one day after Christ returns and we're in the kingdom, there's going to be a role reversal, they're going to be the ones who aren't on top, they're going to be cast away, and you're going to be at the top, so there's going to be a role reversal. You're going to be glorified in me, Jesus says, as you walk through the passage. But notice, uh, verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. I think that's talking about the second coming at the end of the trib, not the rapture at the beginning. Uh, This will happen when the Lord is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with, what does it say? Everlasting destruction. We'll have to come back to that. Everlasting, forever destruction. And shut out, (coughs) pardon me, from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Very strong passage in my opinion. Let's go over to Jude. Verse six And the angels who do not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with notice what it says, temporary chains. Does it say that? No, what does it say? Everlasting chains. Now I'm reading the inspired NIV here. With everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of, notice, eternal fire. And then you come down to verse 13. Let me read verse 12, because one of the phrases, and there's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. These men are blemishes at your love feast. I think that's the meals they were having with the Lord's Supper. Eating with you without the slightest qualm. shepherds who feed only themselves. Now that's interesting, a shepherd feeding only himself. What a weird idea. They are clouds without rain. King James says, clouds without water. I mean that's just a nonsensical thing. Blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild ways of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And then Revelation fourteen Revelation 14, look at verses 10 and 11. We read this earlier. This is the Mark of the Beast passage, actually. Verse 10, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Into the cup of his wrath. Let's stop a minute. Back to the harshness idea. What do people want God to be? They want Him to be a grandfather showering gifts. You know, He's in a rocking chair and He's showering people with the grandfather's gifts. That's what people want God to be. That's not the God of the Bible. See, if the God of the Bible is balanced, If you have no harshness, you end up with a mush God. And I'm sorry, I reject the idea that Jesus looks like he just came out of a beauty parlor and he wouldn't step on an ant. That's not the picture the Bible gives of Jesus. It's not the picture the Bible gives of God. He's not a mush God. But also, he's not this harsh God. Either. If all you have is, and and you run into some, you've seen them. Some of these Christians that, you know... You know, when they talk, when you talk about hell and they're just rolling the amens, they're happy to see people go there. So there's this harshness. If, if you end up with no love and compassion, you end up with a harsh God. The God of the Bible is neither of those extremes. Because both of those pull together in balance. So here, very clearly, wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And in case you don't like the word forever, you think it means something else. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image. It's ongoing, never-ending judgment. And then Revelation 20 the great wine throne judgment that's coming later in the the passage. Earlier in verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I put down Daniel 7 there. Daniel seven is not a hell passage, but I wanted to give it by way of comparison. Remember, I had given you Matthew twenty five forty six, where you have eternal punishment and eternal life in the same passage. And if one's forever, the other one has to be forever. See, and these guys don't do that. They'll make the eternal punishment temporary punishment, uh, and they'll take eternal life as forever. You can't do that in the same verse like that. It's the same word. Well, in Daniel 7, I just want to conceptually give you uh, why you, in general, those people who limit the duration of, of hell really struggle with the actual teaching in the Bible uh, concerning foreverness. <clears throat> and the argument goes like this. Well, the Hebrew word for forever is olam, and it sometimes doesn't refer to forever. Sometimes it refers to age long Or something like that. And that's true. There's always a context. But there are always other ways that that is said. Same way in the uh, Greek New Testament. uh, Ionios, the Greek word there. And uh, maybe we'll get into that a little more later on. But here in Daniel 7, which is, by the way, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Now if I were to ask you this question, I ask my students this all the time, and they sometimes flunk this question. We'll see how you guys do. Can I ask it, how long is God's coming kingdom? Mark heard that question a few times, didn't you? Do you remember that, Mark? <laughs> Would you be able to answer it right right now? Probably. <laughs> How long is God's coming kingdom? Well, a lot of people will say a thousand years. Really? Revelation twenty you know, that's in Revelation twenty. Six times it mentions a thousand years and there's reigning of saints with him then. Okay. But then you go to Revelation twenty two, five, and it says they reign with him forever. You guys heard of Handel's Messiah? Uh, I don't have the voice to handle that, that's for sure. Uh, but, you know, they shall reign for a thousand years. <laughs> it doesn't say a thousand years. It says forever. Well, in Daniel 7, I want you to notice this. Uh, you have the four world kingdoms. The fourth one is Rome. We don't have time to develop that, that's for sure. Uh, but the little horn comes up. He's the Antichrist figure. <coughs> and he's judged by God, the Ancient of Days. And the song that's out, Ancient of Days, has nothing to do with this passage. This is a judgment passage here. And they're judging the Antichrist. <coughs> then you come down, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is, what does it say? Everlasting. Everlasting dominion that will not pass away, And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Notice he says it three ways. The word everlasting. The words will not pass away. And then the words, one that will never be destroyed. (coughs) That's pretty powerful. In case you can't handle that, come on down a little further. Um, Verse... Uh, Seventeen. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. And then what says, yes, forever and ever. In the Hebrew text, that means to the forever of the forevers, it is the strongest way to say that something will never end. That's the picture of everlasting life. In God's kingdom. And then you think about that and you go over to Matthew twenty-five, forty-six. Eternal life and eternal punishment are put together. It's impossible, in my opinion, to think of eternal life, taking the Bible at face value, to take eternal uh, death or eternal punishment as something that is only temporary. Yes? In 2 Thessalonians 1, what does everlasting destruction refer to? I'm so glad you asked that, and I'm going, to, I'm going to cover that. Okay, just hang on. If I, if I miss it somehow, uh, the, question, now the question is, 2 Thessalonians 1, the term everlasting destruction. Because it's one of the arguments of the annihilation guys, which we're going to go over. Which is the next slide. Good segue into my next slide. Okay. The annihilation view. Who are the proponents? Well, there's the Jehovah Witnesses. Some Seventh-day Adventists. It's interesting that among the cult groups, those who hold to Annihilationism also hold to soul sleep. Because that solves some problems for them. Most evangelicals who hold to Annihilationism do not hold to soul sleep. Among evangelicals, I list John Stott and Clark Pinnock, who both died recently. Okay, sometimes this view is referred to as conditional immortality. Then I have that statement by Clark Pinnock. It is more scriptural, theologically coherent, and practical to interpret the nature of hell as the destruction that is non-existence rather than the endless torture of the wicked. So, the main idea is that the wicked are annihilated shortly after the final judgment. Okay? Now let's look at the next slide. And here's this diagram. I'm going to have to find. If you look at the diagram. Now, I'm not giving all the details of all the end-time stuff. I mentioned that a person dies, and they have the intermediate state, our soul with Jesus, our body in the grave. That's an indefinite period of time. We don't know how long that'll be. For some, it's longer than others, right? Let's take St. Augustine. He died 430 A.D. Well, he's dead. His body's in the grave. His spirit's been, let's assume he's saved. His spirit's been with Jesus since 430 A.D., Okay? And those saints who came along later when they died, their experience is a lot less in terms of human time. Okay? Um, but notice the way that the chart reads. Uh, when Jesus comes, you know, whether you have the final judgment, the heaven or kingdom, however you want to voice that, uh, goes on forever, but then there's this annihilation that takes place. Now it's interesting, those who hold to annihilation don't specify how long it is, before there's annihilation. They just specify (coughs) that annihilation occurs at some point so that hell is not forever. Okay? Now, uh, next slide. I want to, I say this up here to say something nice about people. Punch it one more time. Two more times. (laughs) Um, Annihilationism Sometimes people are accused of holding to a universal salvation that everybody gets saved. And some even say the devil gets saved. That's not what the annihilationists believe. John Stott didn't believe that. Even Clark Pinnock, who was quite liberal, didn't believe that. They view, they view themselves as a halfway house between the tradition of UFL and universalism that there really isn't a hell at all. Um... So I put that in there just to be fair to them. Now, what are the major arguments for annihilation? The ones that they use, and I I give five of those. Put the first two up there for me, if you would. The vocabulary of destruction. Things like 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And related to that, imagery of fire as that of destruction or annihilation. Sometimes destruction language is used without the image of fire, and sometimes it, fire is used, and it uses the word destruction. Uh, let's uh, look at some ways that they look at that. I list, let's go to the next slide. Uh, put, go ahead and punch it up again. Uh, put all the passages up there, Aaron, if you would... I think there's a second uh, column of that as well. I'm not, I want those in your, in your notes so that you... Uh, I, want, I want those for you to study. We're not going to look at every single one of them. But I will pick out, I think, maybe three or so. We'll look at those. Uh, the first one I want to deal with is John three sixteen. Have you heard of that verse? Let's look at that. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, notice these words, shall not perish. That would be an example of destruction language. Something perishing. Shall not perish. Shall not be destroyed. So you won't be annihilated, is the way they would read that. But have eternal life. So the the language there is used to describe that. Okay? Second one is Second Thessalonians 1 9, which we saw a while ago, which this young man over here asked me about. In 2 Thessalonians 1 9, as we were coming through, notice verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God. And do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I take that he'll punish those who don't get saved. Verse nine: They will be punished with everlasting destruction. And so the you know it's everlasting in the sense that it goes on forever. But what goes on forever? Your destruction. You you don't exist forever. That's the way they interpret that passage. Okay. Now I'm going to give a response here in just a minute. Let's. Um, Well, let's go to second Peter 3. <clears throat> <clears throat> verse 7. Well, verse 6, by these waters talking about the flood, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. See, here's the passage that my parents told me about on that carport in Ufall, Alabama. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So then they say destruction is annihilation. Okay. Now, all these passages that I've listed here have some way of that they look at it and <clears throat> and they emphasize the destruction aspect in some way. So, what is our response to that? I'm glad you asked. Uh, we're going to look at the punch up the. Uh, in fact, go ahead and punch it all up. I have two. There we go. Right there. Destruction language in the Bible is used many times for judgment that does not annihilate and cause the lack of existence. I thought it was extremely interesting how they handled Second Peter. But let's look at the flood in uh, Genesis 6.13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both of them. Okay, now you could see an annihilation guy saying, okay, they're going to cease to exist. I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Okay, wait a minute. In Noah's flood was the earth vaporized. Did the earth cease to exist in Noah's flood? I mean, it was greatly transformed. But it did not cease to exist. There's a little overreaching here by the annihilationists. Right? Let's look at the Second um, Peter 3 passage. See, and they appeal to verse 7, but, you know, they forget to read verse 6. You know, context can really mess you up sometimes. We just read this, but I'm going to go back and emphasize something differently. You know, in verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. They take the destruction there of ungodly men as annihilation. They're just, both soul and spirit, they just are gone. They don't exist anymore. But look at verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and what? Destroyed. uses destruction language. Did the earth cease to exist? In the flood? No. So destruction language does not mean annihilation. And that's an assumption that those who hold this view take to try and make their view actually fit. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, skip going over the captivity verses, but the same thing applies for the Babylonian captivity. You see the Jeremiah-Isaiah passages there as well. Okay, so let's go back now, the next slide, and let's go down to the third point. Justice disallows disproportionate judgment. Eternal punishment for finite sins is not fair. Okay, how long do we normally live? Okay, three score and ten, and then as our strength shall be. Some live longer, some live shorter. It's a finite time that we live. So, if if you're lost, why would God judge you forever, eternity, for just a finite number of sins in a finite life? You understand the argument? It's a sneaky argument. It's almost, if I might use the term, I think I've coined this term, (laughs) catholicy. See, in Catholic theology, after baptism takes away original sin on the soul of the infant that's baptized, everything in the rest of life is dealing with personal sins. So this view almost treats everything like it's personal sin. But everything's not personal sin. We have a sin nature. Our entire bent is against God until Jesus saves our soul. See, I think they're asking the wrong question. They have a wrong view of sin here to even ask this question. It's not the right question. If I were to reframe it for them, I'd go, okay... What is the greatest sin possible? And here's what I would say. It's not being what you were meant to be in Christ. That's the greatest sin. Having a rebellious disposition that you never resolved in your whole life. Being against God in everything. See, to ask this question, you have to get down to Personal sins only and not the sin nature of the heart. Where those personal sins are just manifestations of a bad heart. And kind of, I think, blows right past the seriousness of sin. That's my response uh, to that problem. Next one, number four. God cannot win in the end if there are still people in rebellion to him and everlasting hell. Now let's resolve something here. Uh, sometimes I hear, and sometimes we preachers say it off, skew just a little bit. Hell is separation from God. But I want you to know, hell is not you know, separation from the presence of God. God is omnipresent, right? What does that mean? God is everywhere all the time. And it's not just that God is everywhere all the time. It's all of God is everywhere all the time. There's not part of Him's in Mississippi and part of Him's up here in West Virginia. All of him is here. Good. God is omnipresent. That means he's in hell. But what are we separated from if we end up in hell? We are separated from the favored presence of God. We are separated from his blessing forever. He is there in eternal cursing. So we need to make sure that we say those things correctly. Mm -hmm. Now, with that as background, then we come to this and the argument is, okay, if people are in hell today, then they're always in rebellion against God. So God never wins over them. Well, wait a minute. Aren't they in hell forever? And who controls the, the key? Who's in control of their punishment? It may, there may be another thing here. This is the philosophical thing we don't have time to develop. But if we go to hell and we ask those guys... Which would you prefer, this or annihilation and non existence? Some of them might prefer that. I don't know. I have to ask them. I don't plan on getting close enough to ask. I think God wins, even with the existence of hell, He's in control. He sets that up. His sovereignty is not affected by the existence of hell. He is still the sovereign king of the universe. Even when hearts rebel against him. You know, and even if people got annihilated, you know, that rebelled, he didn't succeed over them anyway. So the fact that they don't exist for a long time—you got people that don't exist for a long time—that's a blot on God's name too. So to me, it just—it's a very weak argument that they make here. And then number five, they argue that from the harshness of the traditional and metaphorical views. We talked a little bit about the harshness already. Um, but I have another issue here uh, concerning it. So let's go through some problem passages for the annihilationists. I've already given you some. First one is Matthew twenty-five, forty-six, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal is the same word for both. Eternal punishment is hell. Eternal life is heaven. So according to that verse, it is possible to say that if hell is not forever, then heaven is also not forever. You cannot escape that conclusion if you're consistent in the way you use terms. And then the second passage is, we've already seen the Luke 16 passage. I'll punch it up. You know, the, the intermediate state is a problem here. Remember, uh, I have this uh, diagram. I modified this for the annihilationist. Uh, go, go on, go ahead to the next slide. Yeah. See this hell line here? That's that's how we generally view it that at the final judgment. You know, there's, there's hell, the lake of fire for unbelievers. But they would shorten that and... Uh, almost coming out of the final judgment, there's annihilation. You saw that in the earlier diagram. And they say that's necessary to keep God from being harsh. But they still have the intermediate state back there. Luke 16, where uh, you have Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is in torment in the flames. So you have to look at that and you have to use uh, language to kind of wipe it out. So uh, go ahead and put my points up there. First point, the intermediate state. Second, related to that, would not the moral problem exist due to the intermediate state? That's the idea of God being harsh and judgment. They have a problem with the eternal state. And how do they handle that? Well, they come to Luke 16 and they say, it's just flowery language. It doesn't mean anything. That's what I mean by genre, literary genre. They just kind of think, it's a parable. doesn't mean anything. Who cares about the details? And they throw it away. I remember Jesus and his interpretation of some of the parables caring about the details. So I'm not going to throw away those parables. And in Luke 16, it may may not even be a parable. It doesn't call it a parable. Yes, sir. Do you expand on that, too, as being your greatest problem for the annihilationist view? Is that in reference to the fact that the intermediate state as described in Luke 16 is incredibly harsh? Yes. That's the point. That's the point. See, they, they treat, okay, you guys who believe in eternal hell, you're making God sadistic. You know, God's like an eight-year-old boy pulling the wings off flies. Okay, well, wait a minute. He's doing that for a lot of time, just because it's just a short time and not forever. You know, for the short time, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years. Just because it's short doesn't mean it's not, it's, quote, sadistic. You have the same argument problem. So the way they try to handle that is just throw it away and say it's flowery language, it doesn't mean anything. I have one more question that might be helpful to okay. us as, as we wrap this up. Okay, so some of these arguments, like you're at work and you're, you're in a conversation with somebody. And, they're not, and they don't believe in a literal hell, or they're annihilationists. And you want to give some answers to the point, but sometimes it's not easy to give a simple answer to some of these big questions. It's like, okay, let's study for about two hours here, and then you'll have the answer. If someone were to, to you were in a conversation at the coffee pot, and you wanted to say, say two or three things very quickly and concisely, Review for us then what your arguments would be. but eternal, eternal argument is good, isn't it? Yeah, I think I'd start with twenty five forty six 46 in Matthew. Uh, but then two, I think I would start with a worldview question. Uh, you, know, you know, I love you, brother, or whoever it is, I love you. But, you know, I, I think the worldview of Jesus is more accurate than yours. And I'd like to talk to you about that sometime. Um, you know, I think the ancients were far more wise than we moderns think, you know. So I think I would start there and and kind of raise that as a question in their mind, worldview-wise. How do you know that your approach is right? You know, It's not that you just have to debunk my view. You have to show why you are right. So I think I would do that. The Matthew 25, if they're interested in passages, if they're professing Christian or something, then the Matthew 25, 46, in my opinion, is a slam dunk that they can't get around. With your worldview uh, approach, that would be for someone who's an atheist, not yeah. an okay. Yeah, most likely. You know, a believer, I'll deal with passages. Let's look at passages. If they're an unbeliever, I think I'd get into the worldview questions.